Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. should be a bar here. Mm, yeah, I know. I, that was exactly what I was thinking when I looked at this. I thought, God, I wish someone would give me a beer. It would be <laughs> tremendous. Now, Annabelle, you've had a very big day. You've, you've started the day uh, in Queensland, where yes. I understand you had a function where there was a suggestion from the floor that the women in the audience palpate each other's breasts. Well, it's breast self-awareness. Uh, breast we won't be doing that here cancer tonight. Awareness Unless you month, want to. So, and they do things differently in the Gold Coast, yeah. Yes, but <laughs> you are... You're, Apart from being a, a journalist and an author and a, a mother of three, of course, you're, I think, widely renowned as a woman of even temper. You are polite, you're ladylike, yet you commence your book, uh, as Colin pointed out, in a fit of inner rage at an innocent man who was doing nothing but eating French-trimmed lamb cutlets. Why were you so angry with this gentleman? It wasn't a moderate moment, you're completely correct. Well, the story, and I tell it in some detail because it's my first kind of really crystallised moment of genuine wife envy. And I'd gone for some reason, and I don't really recall the reason now in any great clarity, uh, to a conference sort of summit thing. And um, I had kind of bundled into place some sort of highly rickety childcare arrangement for my children and I went to this thing, and I got there, and I got that thing where you, I, I got there and realised that the main reason I think I'd been invited was to sort of chock up the skirt rate of the event. You do it well. And, yeah. And so I had a kind of a grim morning uh, interviewing panels of economists and, um, and repaired for lunch and ran into an old colleague of mine who had been a um, ministerial advisor um, for some years and had then gone off to the public, to the private sector to do less with more. And um, we kind of exchanged <laughs> greetings and uh, enthused over each other and lovely to see you. And he said, he's unmarried, you know, and I've got this uh, little girl. I said, God, that's fantastic. Babies are fabulous, aren't they? Yes, they are. What are you having? Chops, brilliant. What are you having? A pile of buckwheat noodles with a spring roll on top, which is always the vegetarian option at these things. And then uh, he said, yes, look, it's all worked out so well, really. It's great, because my wife has quit her job, so I always know, I have the utter, utmost confidence that our little girl always has the very best of care. <laughs> and I had this little moment, and I really do <coughs> like this guy, and I wish him no ill at all, uh, but I did kind of want to just plant his face in the... Dauphinois potatoes. <laughs> and it was because I thought, I thought, you have no idea of the gold mine that you're sitting on. You know, and a part of it was just thinking, if I had a wife, I wouldn't be feeling incredibly tense right now about whatever's going on at my house or worrying about how I'm going to get back there and if I'm going to be back there in enough time and did I forget that it was casual day today or, you know. Anyway, and I looked around the room in my increasingly deranged state. And in my fevered brain, I thought that all the blokes in the room looked amazingly relaxed. <laughs> and what women there were, I fancied, looked incredibly harried. And I thought, you're all in on it, aren't you? You and your wives, you've got someone at home opening the door to the plumber and getting through some laundry and tidying things, I don't know. I was quite bonkers by that stage. But you know, I do get the odd bout of wife, wife envy from time to time, and that was, that's my first early memory yeah. of it. So then in your book, you begin an elusive search for the wildebeest of modern society, the stay-at-home dad. And what did you discover when you went looking for one of those? Well, the first thing I did was actually search for statistics, because I thought, I mean, I, uh, 
spent a lot of time with politicians and watched politicians a lot, and I, it's always struck me that parliamentary mothers are very different from parliamentary fathers. And it's always been a sort of niggling theory of mine that there would be more women in federal politics if they got the same sort of spouses that the men get, right? Um, I mean, you know, Christopher Pine can have four children in the course of a parliamentary career without turning a hair. You know, nobody even asks him about it, really. But, you know, Tanya Plibersek manages to have three children and people are just constantly calling her ambulances. You know, are you okay? Are you actually okay? No, really, are you okay? You know, it's quite a big deal. Um, anyway, so um, I, I thought, right, I'm going to find out what the national comparative rate of wife having is. I thought this must be a readily Googleable statistic, surely, right? And when I say wife, you know, I mean a spouse that either doesn't work at all or works part-time and therefore has some measure of flexibility to, you know, be there if the plumber comes or do school drop-offs or pick-ups or take food round to sick rallies and all of those other things that you do that aren't paid work but are incredibly important for having a functional life. Anyway, so I googled away and with my pathetic um, brain tried to winkle figures out of the census data and, you know, really... Who do you think you are, George Mercadine? I, 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 I thought of George a number of times and actually normally I would just ring George and make him do it for me but he was very engaged in his new book and I knew, having received some very long phone calls from him on the subject, that he was quite cloistered in that research of his own. So anyway, in the end, I found this fabulous woman at the Australian Institute for Family Studies. And she, very obligingly, had a bit of a whip round using her brain instead, which was uh, a much more reliable um, uh, instrument. And here's the statistics, right? Of working, full-time working fathers, 76% have a spouse who doesn't work or works part-time. Of full-time working mothers, 15% have the same arrangement. And I think that that, I mean, for me, that put a sort of a number on this sort of sneaking suspicion that I'd had that, you know, a lot of women that I work with who are parents always look a bit mad <coughs> and always say things like, I need a wife! You know, when I was writing this book and I told people, I'm writing this book, it's called The Wife Drought, it's about how women don't get wives. I get a very gender-specific response. Um, women would kind of either just fall upon me and start kissing me or <laughs> yell in my face things like, that's my idea, that's my saying, that's what I say. I've been saying that for years, my idea. Okay. <laughs> but men would be a little bit more like, I see. <laughs> and tell me, is there any way that we could arrange for my wife not to have access to this book? <laughs> but look, you know, there's lots in there for the chaps as well, I must say. But look, that's, um, that's what I was digging around, you know, the kind of the topography of the issue, where the numbers are. And I think it's, you know, it's an underlying factor that's quite powerful, I think, in that ever-loving question that we always argue about, about why, you know, women aren't represented in the senior levels of various enterprises to the same degree. Um, as men are. It's not all of the answer, but I reckon if you have, let's say, you know, um, an executive, busy executive who's a, a, a woman with two kids uh, in direct competition with a busy executive who's a guy with two kids. Now, I know there's exceptions to this all over the place, but that guy statistically is five times more likely than she is to have somebody at home, you know, putting the dinner on. And that's a massive difference uh, in your capacity to work productively in a job, you know. The ideal employee is someone who can be there, you know, for breakfast meetings, for snap travel, for late, um, late nights of work. And you're much more able to do that if you've got a bit of give and take at home. Part of, um, I suppose, what you're talking about, which is really interesting, is that it's not just about women going and getting full-time work, that there's obviously responsibilities uh, that they have at home. So moving immediately into the Bermuda Triangle oh. of household mm. rage, uh, you know, about who does things and stuff. Yep. What, what interesting information did you elicit about the cleaning style 
stories ah. of women who work full, who are, who are breadwinners in their own families. You'll be pleased to hear I've what got, you know, a, a staggering amount of interesting information mm. on this very point. Um, well, look, the first thing to say about the household thing is that, and it's an international phenomenon, you know, that men do, women do more housework than men do. I mean, in Australia, it's about twice as much, right? And it hasn't changed all that much, you know, in the last few decades. I mean, um, Australian women do a, like a comparatively high amount of housework, um, less than American women, for instance. Um, now, that's generally put down to the fact that in America there is a much more um, outsourcing sort of culture and the existence of a lowly paid underclass, which is obviously very handy, you know, <laughs> if you want to um, uh, take a load off, not so great for those who are being underpaid to do that work for you. Um, but um, in Australia, yeah, it's about um, twice as much. And Look, in a busy household of, um, of a, a mum and a dad and a couple of kids, um, a woman who doesn't do paid work will do about 65 hours a week. And um, if she goes to part-time, she'll drop that back to about 52 hours a week. And if she goes to full-time, she'll drop that back to about 50, uh, 41 hours a week. So you're still doing a full working week worth of housework. And husbands, like men do about 20 hours a week no matter what else is going on. It's really interesting. It's like an accord agreement that they all sign. I mean, I'm being rude now, but you know, it is really about, men do about 20 hours a week, um, whether they work full-time or part-time or not at all, and whether their wives work full-time, part-time or not at all. Um, so when that woman um, goes into paid work and drops 24 hours of housework in a week, it just disappears into the air, it just doesn't get done, which I find a very refreshing thought. But, <laughs> so that's what happens when you plot um, housework against hours of paid work. The really freaky thing in Australia happens when you plot what hours of uh, housework against earnings. So when a woman is um, at home full time and not working in the paid workforce, um, she has a certain amount of housework, as we know. And for every, uh, this, is, this is research from a um, woman called Janine Baxter, a Queensland researcher, who elicited this um, quite interesting phenomenon, which I'm about to outline. Every extra percentage of, 1% uh, of total household income that a woman earns, she'll do 17 fewer minutes of housework per week. Another one percent, another fewer, another seventeen minutes fewer. It's quite a graceful pattern, <laughs> and it continues right up to the point where she is earning sixty-six point six percent of the total household income, and that is the figure at which things change. That is to say, she's earning just over half. She has become the primary breadwinner of the family. And what happens at that point is that she starts doing more housework again. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? And I talked to this, I, mean, I rang her up, I said, look, what's going on? This doesn't seem right. And she said, I know. We checked it a million times. We worked in with an American team, comparing stats from there. We took out variables, we put in variables, we tried to work out where the glitch in the system would be, but this stubborn pattern remained. When Australian women become the primary breadwinners or the major breadwinners, they pick up housework instead of continuing to drop it off. Because they feel guilty. Well, look, this is the thing that really surprised me about the research that I did for this book. You know, Australia is you know, a relatively egalitarian country, we like to think. <coughs> but the truth is we are much more attached to the sort of male breadwinner model of families than we like to think we are. We have some really deep-rooted assumptions, <coughs> much more so than in America. Um, part of it is, I think, because we have a really high rate of part-time work, about twice as high as it is in the States. And the big story of the last half century is actually the move from of women <coughs> from the home into part-time work. We have you know, a big part-time work culture in Australia, and it's predominantly work that's done by women. Um, men haven't really changed their work patterns much at all um, in the last few decades in Australia. So the thesis that Janine Baxter has 
is that we are more influenced than we really understand by these underlying assumptions about who will do what. And these assumptions, I have to say, really kick in when men and women get together and have babies. Because that is where housework really <coughs> escalates. You've got weird new jobs that no one really knows how to do. And an underlying assumption about who will probably be better at those jobs, right? Um, and so the woman that we're talking about who gets to the 66.6%, you know, I call it the number of the laundress, and, um, <laughs> and starts picking up more housework, is in some weird way compensating for her violation of the other part of the assumption, which is that her husband will be the primary breadwinner, by picking up more housework to kind of balance that out. It's weird, isn't it? You know, And yet, uh, the research is kind of pretty reliable. But what happens um, to men who uh, subvert the dominant paradigm in your book and want to go and do reading well, that happens. Well, that happens too. And look, that's the other half of this equation. I mean, the thing that really freaks me out about these, all these debates is we kind of have them in isolation. We have all this incredible amount of research <coughs> into, you know, what happens to women at work. You know, there's an enormous amount of research on um, factors in the workplace that influence um, women's failure to kind of get parity with men. I mean, there's this sort of amazing drop-off that happens in Australia where, I mean, it was in the 80s that women first overtook men uh, in terms of the numbers of university graduates. I think we're now something like 64% of uni university graduates. It might even be 68. I don't quite remember. Um, and then um, women are about 45% of middle management positions in Australia, then about 10% of executives, and then about 2% of chief executives um, uh, in the um, ASX 200, uh, depending on whether you know Gail Kelly is on leave that day or not. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and so um, we have all this research into what happens at work. And then there's all this research about what happens at home as well, you know, time use diaries and, you know, who does what. But what there really isn't that much of is putting it all together and working out that, you know, if someone is run ragged at home, then it affects their ability to kind of take on <laughs> stuff at work to some extent. Um, so, and I think that when we concentrate on what happens to women at work, um, we kind of get obsessed with the barriers that exist towards women in the way of women as they make their way into the workplace. We don't really pay that much attention to the difficulties that confront men if they want to get out of it. Um, my friend George Megalogenis and yours said to me once, you know, the thing is, Annabelle, that women find it hard to ask for pay rises and men find it hard to ask for less work. And I think that that's true. And the barriers to men are not just about, you know, trepidation about, you know, asking to work part-time and, and so on. But it's also, um, there are also weird kind of barriers in the domestic sphere um, that are kind of put up against men as well. And one of them is this sort of thing where you would never be allowed in an, any modern workplace to sort of stand up and say, do you know what? Women are really crap at counting and you should never make them your accountant. Or, you know, women make, make terrible lawyers or whatever because you'd be sort of up in front of Harry Ox, quick smart, and quite right too. But it's perfectly acceptable to say as a point of generality that men are rubbish at cleaning or that you would never trust your husband to get the kids dressed for school because they'd end up wearing odd socks and, you know, snowsuits or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a highly unregulated <coughs> system. I mean, there are whole tracks of the advertising industry that depend on the joke about men being bad at stuff, right? You know, nappy ads. Um, there's that great one with the, uh, the Kia Sportage wagon where this guy's sort of, you know, got a real white man overbite going on. He's grooving along to Grandmaster Flash. And he pulls into his driveway where his wife, this is drained looking woman, <laughs> sort of gray face, She's using, you know, the last drops of her human optimism to water the shrubs. <laughs> and she looks up and she says, did you get the nappies? And he says, bah, nappies. You know, like, men are hopeless, right? Um, I got a copy of the best of Mere Male, which is this column that um, 
new idea has been running since 1950. And it's this hilarious column where you write in with a gorgeous instance of your husband being rubbish at something. Um, and it's all sort of, you know, dear mere male, you know, said he'd make me a cup of tea because, you know, I'd just lost my limbs in a horrific tractor accident. <laughs> and uh, he grabbed the electric kettle, turned on the hot plate, and, you know, put the kettle on the hot plate. There. <laughs> oh, oh, how we laughed. Um, or there's this great one in there that I read, you know, I'm, of course, completely attached to this compendium now, as I find it such gripping reading. Um, there was a, a girl who said, you know, I went over to my boyfriend's house for lunch and my, my boyfriend's mother said, oh, you know, Peter even helped to make the salad. Uh, then she took a bite of the salad, the mum, and said, oh, Peter, did you wash the salad leaves? And he said, proudly, yes, and I even used soap. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I mean, that still happens, you know. And I think that there's something weird in the culture where if someone is not supposed to be good at something, then it's okay to say that they're rubbish at it. It's okay to tease them about it. And I always think about, um, you know, going to Tony Abbott's house and filming Kitchen Cabinet, and also going to, to Joe Hockey's house, the sort of infamous frat house. And both of them are just terribly rubbish cooks, you know, um, in the nicest possible way. You know, I handed Joe this iceberg lettuce, and I've just never seen such a chill of fear run through <laughs> No idea what to do with it, you know. And nobody thought, well, we shouldn't let him be treasurer. He seems like a fool, you know. And Tony Abbott, you know, was sort of in his kitchen making me a piece of fish in foil to put on barbecue. And he's gone for the butter and buttered this piece of fish, and I'm thinking, I'm not sure if that's right. Is that right? Anyway, and then a bit of butter left over, so he puts it back in the butter dish. And I'm like, <laughs> so I sort of dived in to stop it, because I think, Margie, she's suffered enough. I mean, she's going to have fishy toast in the morning. Anyway, and like, nobody wrote in or got crazy upset about the fact that these guys couldn't cook. It was just sort of, you know, a normal thing. And yet, you know, Julia Gillard poses next to an empty fruit, fruit bowl, bowl and it's like the world is going to end. You know? We really should reappraise this woman. existential metaphor for her womb. That's right. But, um, but you, know, you know that there's, there's a massive spike in fruit sales yeah, yeah. now because like, well, look, no woman in politics is going to be seen appear. dead without a lot of fruit That's in a right. fruit bowl. <laughs> you won't catch me without fruit in my fruit bowl. Um, but look, I mean, that's my only complaint about the book. I, I've read the book, I love the book, I think it's a terrific book, because there's not enough recipes. There is a recipe for... <laughs> I know where you're going. Yeah. I'm just so there's, you know. There's I'm a recipe for jellied breast milk in there, but I, mean, I, I won't talk about it. We'll let them We can it. talk about yeah. it, because, you know, one thing I've started thinking in recent days is it's got to be open disclosure. One of the weird things about work and family, which is still a kind of struggle that has a female face, we've got to help the women with the work and family. Now, I think... It, it's nowhere near a, an open playing field. You think the should field. be jellying their own breast milk? If possible. Um, anyway, I think that you've got to just say it. I mean, people, one of the great things that I think women often find stressful, and, you know, we talk about working mothers, even though we never say working fathers, even though, you know, there are heaps of working fathers that really put in and kind of struggle as well, and we never really even give them a name, which seems a bit rough. Um, but one thing that um, people find very, very kind of difficult, I think, is that when you are kind of juggling full-time work and family, it's not necessarily just kids, it's, you know, other stuff that people do in their lives, um, you often feel like you're trying to work as if you don't have a family and run your family as if you don't have a job. And then you end up just getting horribly exhausted. <laughs> So I think you've got to talk about it. In the spirit of that, I will tell you about the jelly. Mm. So when we Please were making do. kitchen cabinet gather last round. year, gather round. <laughs> when we were making kitchen cabinet last year, I had, due to some sort of administrative error, had a baby. Um, <laughs> and our third child, very welcome, slightly surprising, completely adorable. And this little muppet would not go in a car did not like cars, did not like any kind of conveyance that didn't involve being cuddled. She's probably going to be a mathematical genius. I suspect so. There'd have to be one um, <laughs> in the family. And 
she also wouldn't accept bottles of any kind. So really, I just had to take her everywhere. I think I just took her to work. When, um, oh look, I don't know, which leadership spill was it when Kate was tiny? Oh, there were so many. Okay, one of them Must right. have been, it was February 2012. Okay, so, so it, was, it, was, the one it where was the one where Kevin went, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was gone over and said, right, it's on, it's on, it's on, it's... It's off! off yes. So that one. Yeah. And I went called into work and I said, well, I've just got this... Oh, so I just took this baby into the uh, radio studio and really freaked out David Marr in a big way by... Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so... Uh, anyway, so the way that we operated this arrangement was that we chose our guests for Kitchen Cabinet on the basis of whether we could get there by train. And... Um, <laughs> And then our producer used to tie my baby to her chest and then put a remote earpiece in her ear and then walk up and down outside the house where we were filming, listening into the interview, and my baby would sleep on her while I was doing the interview. And then we'd be I and took your baby outside once when you were talking you to Jack Water. You did indeed. Yeah, I've done it too. I've even handed that baby to Bill Heffernan. Mm. <laughs> I have. I have. I have. Don't say that there are never solutions. No. Anyway, but then at, at some point we worked out that she would actually, although she wouldn't do bottles, she would take food off a spoon. And so if you do add a sort of a leaf gelatin to a slightly warmed breast milk, you will find that you can make a sort of human panna cotta. <laughs> a baby will accept off a spoon. I'm just telling you that for free, because it could be useful. Although I do notice that my friends never try anything from my fridge. <laughs> anyway, so th I mean, I tell that story in the spirit of, you know, stupid things that people do. Well, uh, it's tremendous, and if I ever need to jelly my own breast milk, you'll be the lady I come to first. So we've um, we've got to the end of our half hour, so we should probably open it up that to... Way, that didn't take long. Yes, the ladies and gentlemen of Do you have any questions? Otherwise, it'll just be jellying body fluids. You know, so <laughs> no one wants that, really. Hi Annabelle, my name's Hi. David. Um, I haven't got a wife, I've got a husband, and his name is Jason, and he's terrific. And um, Jason and me have a son, his name is Oliver. Oh, he's terrific too. <laughs> the, um, the themes in your book are at the forefront of my life right now because I'm at home with Oliver. Right. And every day scares me. And, um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the most rewarding and, and fun job I've ever had. But I'm, I've gotta, I'm gonna ask you a cheeky question. I, sure. I think you've maybe touched on this already. Why did you name your book The Wife Drought? It's very, that's a very catchy title, but the way I see it, this is not a contest between wives and husbands or husbands and husbands and no. men and women. This is about the balancing work and life and the dual purpose I of wanting both. I would really like to sit down with you and have a conversation about how it all works in your household. Because I mean, to negotiate arrangements when you don't have a kind of a gendered expectation about how things are going to go must be really interesting. And I think, you know, I think that, um, I think lots of heterosexual couples do it as well, but y you have to talk about it at the right time, right? Because one of the things about having babies, as I'm sure, David, you have established with lovely Oliver, is that when you get one of these things, nobody knows what to do, right? Everybody's an idiot. <laughs> but because of the way biology works, often, you know, it's the mother who is kind of thrust into early competence. And because everything is confused, and there's mess everywhere, and no one's sleeping, and everyone's grumpy, you know, you can fall into these patterns that it's later difficult to extricate yourself. So I think often um, fathers in heterosexual families get kind of, you know, they can kind of end up drifting away a little bit because they're not as good at it, you know, um, even after a couple of months. And some of the really interesting, you know, countries that have done fascinating things with paternity leave or parental leave, like Norway, which like a couple of decades ago introduced this really kind of social engineering system of parental leave, but they have this really generous public pay parental leave scheme, but they made a whole chunk of it only available if the dad takes it. And as a result, you know, 
can never be quite sure with Norway because they do all sorts of other sensible things like, you know, investing all their resources income in a sovereign wealth fund so they can laugh at the rest of us for the rest of the year. <laughs> but, you know, they have a much more even um, breakdown of domestic work between the sexes and they have much greater um, female participation in the workforce as well. Now, David, I, I'm humouring... Humour me, but have I not answered your question? I suspect I might not have. <laughs> Can you just politely and quickly whisper what your question was? Because I've gone on a massive dose of toilet the wife drought. Oh, the wife drought. Yeah, look, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. It's the wife drought. I use the word wife, um, although as a concept I'm referring to, you know, spouses, basically. Because basically any spouse that does that is a total goldmine for the wage-earning um, and you talk about that um, in your book a bit. You have a reference to same-sex relationships. Yeah, yeah. But look, I, um, I chose that word because it kind of summoned all of those antiquated concepts, you know, which I think are less antiquated than we like to think they are. And because I have heard so many conversations between women where they say, you know what I need? You know, I need a wife. And um, it's kind of a joke um, between women, but it, it isn't really a joke, you know. It's, it's quite a, a significant factor, I think. So that's why I sort of deliberately chose that term. Also, I thought it was catchy. <laughs> um, you were just on the subject of recipes a moment ago, Annabelle. I just yes. wanted to ask, um, are you as accomplished a dessert cook as appeared on your <laughs> well, I do um, make them and transport them, yes, and I'm currently trying to work out how to get a um, musket jelly to Perth at the weekend. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work yet. Um, um, look, I would say I'm sort of middling dessert chef. I mean, I practice quite a bit. I usually prefer to cook savoury food, to tell you the truth, but um, I have really learned a lot of desserts for making this series. My best friend from primary school, Wendy, who actually lives in the UK, she is a kind of a genius cook. And so she makes up a lot of the recipes and then we kind of go back and forth and try them out and, you know. So it's, um, it's lots of fun to make them up. Um, but yeah, I do, um, I do like to take desserts to people's houses. I mean, you know, th that's one of the things about domestic labour, right, um, that causes so much tension. And, I, and now I'm digressing from your question as well, I apologise is that not, you know, splitting up housework is not simple. It's not just a question of, you know, this mug is dirty. I will wash it on Mondays and Wednesdays <laughs> and Fridays. <laughs> you will wash it on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays. And on Sundays, perhaps we'll wash it together. You know, <laughs> it's not as simple as that because housework is not a static kind of amount of work that can be divided, because quite often in the household, there are asymmetric expectations about what constitutes mm -hmm. an appropriate level of cleanliness, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I write about this quite a bit in the book, and you know, that is what causes the stress often, because person A is not satisfied with person B's clean. Person A, accepts that the children have been delivered to school but does not accept that they have been properly equipped for the day or something like that, you know? And there's this great book called It's Not You, It's the Dishes where a pair of <laughs> economists go and like it's, like, it's like that What's Not to Wear show, you know? They go in and visit these fighting couples and get them to tell them everything. Can that be your next show? And then they, <laughs> and then they use economic strategies of sort of supply, demand, um, negotiation to solve these problems. And you'd be surprised how often it involves trading sort of sex. draped cleaning for sex. <laughs> Sorry, what? It's, very, it's a very racy book, but it's a great one. And there's this guy um, in the States called Jonathan Chait who wrote this great article, which um, I cite in the book. And it's called, this article, stirringly enough, The Case for Filth. <laughs> and he talks all about the asymmetry of standards between him and his wife. And he says that they've negotiated it, they've arrived at an agreed level, and it's somewhere dirtier than her preferred <coughs> state, and somewhere cleaner than his natural state. And that's where they've come to rest. 
And he said, look, sometimes the answer to the housework problem is just doing less of it, right? And he says that the inequity of division of domestic labour is one of the only examples of inequality in the world that can genuinely be solved by apathy. <laughs> and that is... <laughs> It's such a beautiful thought to me. I really am hanging on to that idea. I mean, I live in filth myself, so I use it as a sort of defense mechanism, you know. Um, I think, you know, I embrace that. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I just wanted to ask quickly, is there a relationship, because you're talking about maternity leave before paternity leave. Yep. They call it parental leave. Um, is there a relationship between who takes it and how much money each person in the couple is earning? So as, as women earn more money, do they take less parental leave? Or well, is that the same as the other thing? I mean, it is much more commonly women who take parental leave still. Um, and, uh, and as we know, on average, um, men do out-earn women. Um, in the new paid parental leave scheme, actually, the, the Abbott scheme, which, well, I don't know. What's going to happen to that, Sam? I don't know. Ask Clive. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> So that sets up, obviously, the, um, the um, money is paid according <coughs> to the recipient's salary, right? But if it's the father who's claiming it, then, and he owns more than his wife, then he has to take it at her salary, right? And I, I mean, I think that you have to use, um, I think you have to use tools to kind of change the way men approach this whole I think there's lots of evidence that show that men who are really engaged early on in their kids' lives, and I've <coughs> talked to heaps of them in the book, they go on to have a bit of an epiphany about work and family. You know, and just as David was saying, this is a, an incredibly scary thing to do, but also this great thing to do. I think that um, men who do take that step do change, just like women often change. I mean, like the great underlying tragedy in all is that, you know, women's interactions with work, you know, particularly after they have families, are not easy, you know, they're beset with difficulties. But at heart, I think that there is something fabulous about the flexibility to move in and out of the workforce as you respond to the other challenges that life brings you. And I think it's something that women kind of have got their heads around and that men just do much less of. And although there's talk about, you know, this sort of, you know, growth in stay-at-home dads, the statistics in Australia really don't bear that out very much. And in truth, women have changed the way that they work massively over the last 50 years, but men haven't changed that much. I mean, 20 years ago, 80%, 87% of fathers worked, and today it's 90%. You know, women's work patterns are changed by family, and men's work patterns are changed by economies. They tend to wind up, you know, the stats say that men are more likely to wind up um, at home with children if they're made redundant than if they decide to be there. And, you know, um, I think that's sad. I think a lot of men miss opportunities like that. Um, I just wanted to ask, you kind of have this focus on one person always kind of missing out in one way while the other person misses out in a different way. Did you meet any magical unicorn couples where <laughs> everyone was doing everything and was all even and <laughs> perfect? Or is it always one person's more domestic, one person's earning more? Or, you know? Well, yeah, I don't think you ever... I mean, I mean I'm sure there are people like that. Um, I, I think that the funny thing about relationships is that they f all feel incredibly individual. And it's not until you pull back and have a look at the sort of, you know, group effect that you start to realise these incredible patterns. And having families is just this one moment where you think you're, you know, like people think they're the first person in the world to have a baby, right? You know, well, I think we'll do it like this, you know. And you're kind of subscribing to a pattern that thousands and millions of other people um, <laughs> subscribe to. Um, the funniest thing about um, researching this book is this great kind of um, takeout from the 2011 census where the ABS in the census say, uh, at the end of it, each census, census, they announce who the average Australian is, 
love it's that. It's so brilliant. I love that. It's, she's 163 centimetres. Yes. 37, 37 years old. 37 years old. And she weighs 71 kilos. And Stand up, Miss Australia. She's been married for you know, eight years. She's got two children, aged seven and five. She lives in the outer suburbs of a major metropolitan city. She and her husband drive two cars. Uh, they pay $1,800 a month for their mortgage. She has a degree in business management, uh, but she uh, works in retail because she prefers the flexibility. She works 32 hours a week. Anyway, and at the end of this rundown, which is just so brilliant in its detail, the ABS, in its fantastically desiccated way, says, well, yes, so anyway, this is the average Australian, and then we compose that by taking the commonest features of all of these classes of people and knocking them together. That said, there isn't one person in Australia who actually answers to all of these. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that because it shows like the absolute failure of statistics <laughs> and averages in some respect. And like my greatest fear, you know, is I think of people reading this book and going, "Well, that's not me." And you know. The mythical unicorn couple would read this through and go, well, we've got that sorted out. I'm going to put this book in the rubbish. But, you know, there are strange twists and turns in every relationship. And um, I think the funny thing, and there's a whole chapter about what happens, you know, when roles are reversed and what uh, funny things that female breadwinners get asked at work that men never do. And funny things, you know, things like, you know, are you all right? And um, where are the children? And, um, <laughs> and you know... Aren't you getting exhausted working? You know, <clears throat> and funny things that um, stay-at-home dads get asked that um, stay-at-home mums never do. Things like, "Are you all right?" and um, <clears throat> "Do you need some help?" and "When are you going back to work?" And that can be a pretty isolating experience, I think. By the way, you know, and a lot of the um, home dads that I spoke to had lots of funny stories about weird things that had happened to them. Um, it was sort of like a bit of black humour, really, because some of them are a bit sad. Uh, I haven't read the book, um, but it sounds as if you looked at couples together raising children. What about the role of grandparents and others in families who often contribute a great deal, and those who don't have those other supports really do have much greater demands on them? Well, you know, grandparents are like substitute wives, right? And you see, when you don't have a wife and you uh, work full-time, I mean, couples that, where everyone's working full-time, they have to build themselves wives. And that might be one day or two days of grandparents, one day or two days of childcare, depending on what they can afford, because, as I suspect you know, a lot of grandparents do it for love. And they have become a really solid part of Australian families' childcare solution. And they are invoked when people try and build themselves wives. I think, you know, everyone is always just trying to respond to the situations in which they find themselves. And um, my, my theory, as I've explained it, is that if there was a little more flexibility all round, I think you might find it easier to work some situations. I may be completely wrong, it's just a guess, backed up by heavy stats. <laughs> Hi. Um, I did walk in a little bit late, so I apologise if you've gone over this already. But something I'm really interested <coughs> is tension associated with last names that children take, particularly if it's in a family where there's two, last, two different last names, and things like the orders of double barrel names. Did you come across that at all and I didn't actually um, although that would be a fascinating line of inquiry no I mean in terms of the negotiations between um, parents you know I was kind of looking at you know who has responsibility for various um, jobs you know whether it's income earning or um, work around the home I do think that you know the assumptions and I mean people assume that when children are born that they'll take their father's name right and so when you do something that's um, different, you get a bit of like, what? And I find that when people change <coughs> significant elements of the arrangements that we assume to be customary in Australian society, there's a lot of what? Um, and, you know, dads get that when they're 
um, at home with their kids. Mums get that when they go um, back to work full time. I think there are a lot of assumptions built into um, institutions as well. I mean, um, I know I've heard lots of tales of full-time working women who always get called by the school um, even though their husband is looking after the children. You know, the assumption is that you call the mum first. Um, I met some quite militant mums about that, including one who said, I just don't pick up. It's like, whoa, wow, <laughs> hardcore. All right, you know. Hardball. The best, I, so I talked to Fiona Sugden, right? So oh, yeah, I you, like this story. you know, um, in the last election campaign where you see pictures, like footage of Kevin Rudd rampaging through shopping centres, kissing people and having selfies and stuff. And the woman with about eight phones and long blonde hair behind him is a woman called Fiona Sugden. Now, she is kind of an um, amazing woman. Uh, she's about 30 and she has three little kids. And last year, when Kevin ascended the papal throne again, uh, he rang her up and he said, will you come on the campaign trail with me on the 2013 election campaign? And she at that stage had um, three children under the age of five. And she said, yep. I will. And the baby was four months or six months? Six I months, six I think, months. yeah. And her husband, you know, stepped in and was the sole carer for those kids at that time. I imagine that was jealousy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> yes, gelatine sales went through the roof. <laughs> Lots of cows without feet walking around. Anyway, so, and she practically had to engage another press secretary to deal with people's angst about you know, what she was I doing. I feel bad about that because I did the same thing. I, I actually was one of those people who was going, are you all right? Are you, right? you thought of a pair of pair? What's going crazy? on? Do you need a cup of tea? What's are you happening? Have you lost your mind? Mm. You know, and I mean, campaign trails are full Because her of children pharmacy. were in Queensland, yep. Brisbane, and a lot of days she was working from Canberra at you know, 3.30am or whenever Kevin first called. Yeah. <laughs> ring, <laughs> ring. <laughs> Hello. But she just said, they are with their father. They are fine. And I miss them. Of course I do. But they are fine. You know, and it took people, and you know, she said, look, I love my husband. He's great. But if I had a dollar for everybody who came up to me and said, oh, he's amazing. <laughs> And women coming up to him and saying, you're amazing. Can I get you a casserole? Can I help you in some way? Can I take some of those children, you know? And, you know, <laughs> it's kind of patronizing if you assume that this parent is incapable of looking after their children. And I think it was kind of a bit of a drag for her. She became really hard line about it, mm. you know? Um, and she's a great mother, but she was away from them doing a job for a period and then she went back. Anyway, so I think that you know, when you change assumptions, when you run counter to people's assumptions, you end up answering a lot of questions. And I suspect that's as much the case for name choice as it is for job allocation. Time for one last question. Anyone else want to be a hero? <laughs> <laughs> right up the back. I think this lady was first here. Um, you talked a lot about negotiation, about how the domestic stuff gets sorted out, but I wasn't clear whether you meant actually the process of negotiation or just that the outcomes turned out that way. Did you actually talk to people about the process of negotiating or did you observe their negotiating styles and do you have anything to share about you know, how that works or doesn't work? Do you know what? I, I didn't really concentrate on the process all that much on the domestic stuff. I kind of talked to people. I mean, um, there's this great and completely bonkers passage in a, um, a, a New Atlantic article that I cite where this guy is talking about the division of labour between him and his wife. It's different from the other one that I cited, and brilliantly, I can't remember this author's name. Um, but he said there's this sort of weird Byzantine trading going on. He said, for instance, 
when I, it's, it's, it's my wife's job to clean, to, to empty the dishwasher in our division of labour. I do laundry and blah, 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 blah. She empties the dishwasher, except she has this weird thing where she doesn't like emptying the cutlery compartment. <laughs> it freaks her out for some reason. So that's my job. <laughs> so if I clear the whole dishwasher, I'm doing her a favour except in respect of the cutlery compartment, <laughs> which is my job anyway. And you know you get that thing where you have this division of labour that is unconscious and it evolves over time. And if you do a job that's kind of regarded as the other person's, you're like, see what I did for you, sweetie? Yeah. So much <laughs> it's so weird. Negotiation is not the right word for it. It's like a sort of blob-like evolution of oddity, which is what makes you know every household so different. But the really interesting negotiation process that I did look into was the negotiation process that men use when they want to ask for less work at work. Because, you know, I think it's very fashionable right now for companies and organisations to have flexible work policies. I think they tend to be marketed towards women in organisations. And I've heard, I don't know how many reports of men who say, flexible work policy, I've actually bothered to read it. Now, I'd like to um, work a nine-day fortnight, or I'd like to come in early and leave early on these days. And they get told, well, yeah, sure, we have a flexible work policy, but it doesn't really apply to you. <laughs> and the negotiation processes that some of these guys went into, and I, I give a, few, a couple of case studies that are particularly interesting, and I chose them. I heard many, many, many of them. I chose these ones because these guys got there in the end because they were persistent. But there was all sorts of weird stuff that happened along the way, usually with managers who weren't quite sure whether they were allowed to apply the firm's policy to this person. It didn't seem right, you know. Don't really want to set a precedent necessarily. You know, and it showed me that, you know, if you're persistent, you know, you can get there. You just got to be ready to kind of, you've got to kind of bat through a whole lot of stuff. Um, not unlike, you know, stuff that women have done in the past to get to various parts of the workplace. And that's an interesting negotiation. And I think that, I mean, my sense of how you get movement in this area is you get it when senior men in organisations don't just say, we have a flexible work policy, but they utilise that flexible work policy themselves so that you can see them changing the way that they work and that you know, therefore, that it's okay to do. Anyway. I digress as ever, but thank you very much for the question. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.